the next three weeks, uh, we're going to take a, a small break from our series in the book of Acts uh, to, uh, to, to talk about gospel conversations. Now, as a church, we have said that our mission is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. That as a church, we strive to be a diverse body of believers, a, a family of faith who know Christ as Savior and Lord through His Word, who are growing in maturity as disciples of Jesus, and who are going to our neighbors and to the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talk a lot about, and we have been talking a lot about as we work through the book of Acts, having gospel conversations, sharing the gospel with people. But I think sometimes uh, that uh, imperative of Scripture to tell others about who Jesus is, to share the gospel with others, it can seem a little bit daunting. We, we sometimes may feel like in order to uh, be good gospel sharers, we have to be like street corner soapbox preachers, and that doesn't suit all of us, maybe necessarily very comfortably. Uh, my hope is over the next three weeks to spend some time talking about uh, a way to frame our conversations about the gospel uh, with people that we know and love and care about who don't yet know Christ. Talking about God's design for all things, the problem of sin in the world, how it affects all things, and then ultimately God's solution to returning back to the way that he has designed things. Today we're going to spend some time in Genesis talking about God's grand design in creation and how to use that, what we understand of, of what God has said uh, to us about his design for creation, how to use that to engage people in conversations about Jesus in non-threatening, comfortable, casual ways. We see all throughout the course of Scripture that the gospel can be framed within this discussion, as we said, of God's design and our sin, the brokenness of sin in the world, and God's rescue plan for us in Christ. The design aspect specifically speaks to God's intention for man in creating us, creating humankind in his own image. Vestiges, reflections of which the image of God are plainly seen, uh, I think most specifically in our capacity for love and worship and morality and creativity, all things that we'll look at today. As a result of having looked at these first few verses in, or, uh, few verses in Genesis chapter 1, I would hope that coming away this morning, we would have an understanding of the biblical notion of that Latin word, imago Dei, which is the image of God in mankind, and to begin to consider how to steer conversations that we have to the gospel by pointing to common manifestations of love, worship, morality, and creativity as we're talking to people about Jesus. Let's turn now our attention to... Corey, I'm going to move this microphone over here, all right, bud? Thank you. You, you tall, man. Let's, let's look now at God's Word, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. It'll be on the screens behind me. You have it in your copy of God's Word. Let's stand together in honor of reading God's Word as a family of faith. There we read Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Towards the end of uh, God's creative work at the beginning of time, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish uh, of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God, our Father, as we approach your word this morning, I pray that you would use me as your servant to speak clearly truths from your word. God, not to add anything to it, not to be creative with what you have said, but God, only to speak it clearly, to deliver it plainly, that we might be equipped by it uh, to exalt Christ in our lives and in our conversations about him. We pray it in his name. Amen. You be seated. As we look at Genesis 1, and in a little bit, parts of Genesis 2 as well, we find that these first two chapters of the Bible answer two separate questions for us. How did we get here, and what are we here for? Let's look at the first of those two questions. How did we get here? This very question of origins, asking how did we get here, why is there something rather than nothing, where did all of this come from, is a question that mankind has been trying to answer for as long as we have written records of human history, and, and maybe even longer than that. And so far as we can know or tell, we're the only creatures on this planet 
who have the capacity for understanding our own existence at this level well enough to even form that question in our minds. Nor the creature on earth has ever asked him or herself, itself, well, how did we get here? Without a doubt, human beings are created to be storytellers, and not primarily in the fictional sense. We seem to have this intrinsic need, this drive within us to tell the story of how things came to be and how certain events took place, why those events were significant. And we are extremely adept, we're very talented at telling our many stories throughout human history. You probably know as well as I that there are countless origin stories across the global human population, countless tales of how we came to be, why there is something rather than nothing. Hindus have one, Native American animists have several, depending on their background. The people of the African continent have, have many more. So do Buddhists and most certainly even naturalistic evolutionists. Everybody has a story, an explanation for how we got here. But friends, I would contend this morning that the most compelling story, though maybe not always the most dramatic or entertaining as several others, the most compelling story that answers the question, how do we get here, is the story that the Bible tells the Bible story of creation, of our origins, is so compelling. It's, it's so convincing because it answers this question with such clarity and succinctness and even consistency across all of its 66 books with what we can know about our world today that it, it just seems to make the best sense to me. It gives the best, clearest explanation for why there is something rather than nothing. The Bible tells us, as we read here in Genesis, that we got here by the sole action and word of the one true living God. He spoke us into existence. Verse 26 of chapter 1 of Genesis says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. He, friends, spoke us into existence. He fashioned us by his own hand. And along with us, everything also that we see and know and have yet to explore in the universe, all of it exists because God God spoke it into existence. Ours is not a world that's born out of chaos and divine warfare like the ancient Canaanites believed. Nor is it a chance accident of yet undetermined physical laws and time. It's all here on purpose and all here because of the direct action of God. This may be a difficult thing for you to talk about with your non-believing friend or neighbor. I get that. Perhaps they find more compelling the origin stories told by the late Carl Sagan or more contemporarily Neil deGrasse Tyson in the two different iterations of the Cosmos television series. Friends, even I'll admit that DeGrasse Tyson's version of Cosmos uh, most recently aired on Fox a few years ago. It's on Netflix now, if you have that. Uh, His version of Cosmos, it fills me with awe and wonder at the complexity and beauty of our universe. He talks about some amazing things that are happening in our universe, things that we can observe and see, and it's, it's pretty cool. But I'm with you in the sense that it can be hard to make a compelling argument. For our origin from the hand of God in the face of what appears to be a lot of scientific data that many would assume are pointing us to a different direction. Often we're told that in the face of science and and what we can observe with our own eyes that a biblical understanding of creation just doesn't hold up. It can't hold a a candle to the Genesis story of how the world came to be. can't hold a candle to what uh, Carl Sagan, Neil deGrasse Tyson and so many other evolutionists and quantum physicists may know and understand. But friends, I think there are lots of reasons to argue otherwise. And we should argue otherwise. We should have good reasons for why the Bible's uh, story of creation is more believable, more consistent than what we hear from naturalistic evolutionists. Now listen, my purpose this morning is not for, uh, not for us to answer all of those objections this morning. There, there are uh, lots of places that you can go to get resources, uh, apologetic resources for being able to discuss origins and, and, uh, and the creation story with non-believing friends. Um, the internet is full of them. Uh, Josh McDowell has a, a good book from like a million years ago called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Uh, I commend it to your reading. There are lots of resources for you to, uh, to be able to develop your, your apologetic defense of God's uh, word in creation. But rather, my purpose this morning is for us to key in again with a fresh sense of faith that Genesis 1 can be true. That's what I want, that's what I want for us to hone in on this morning. For certainly, if we believe that God has raised his own son, Jesus, from the dead, the central claim of our faith, the resurrection, is it really any that much harder to believe that the world was created as Scripture says it was? 
If God could raise a man from death to life, never to die again, in his own son, Jesus, on the cross for our sins, raised for our justification, how much harder is it really for God to speak the universe into existence? What rather I would have us to see from Genesis this morning is that the almighty creator in all of his majesty and power, power, creator, ruler, sustainer of the universe, who by simply speaking is able to give existence to an ever-expanding universe and mankind to populate it. Words as powerful as these from the mouth of God can also give sight and life and faith to those who have previously blinded themselves to this reality. We come to Genesis 1 and we ask this question, how did we get here? And Genesis 1 clearly tells us God spoke us into existence. He fashioned us with his own hand. That's the answer. That's how we got here. And so, friends, even as you engage in conversations about our origins and where we came from, how did we get here, as Bible-believing, Jesus-exalting Christians in the world, I would encourage you, just in light of what we've read here and, and, the, and, and the answer that Genesis gives to that question, that as you pursue conversations with non-believing friends and family and coworkers and classmates, wherever you may find yourself, engage in those conversations with faith that our all-powerful creator has the power to change lives. If God can speak the cosmos into existence, his word can bring life to dead souls, can bring sight to blind eyes, can bring hearing to deaf ears, can soften hardened hearts. Trust God in this process as you engage people in gospel conversations, even as you maybe uh, debate or discuss our origin, have faith that as you share faithfully what God's word has said, that his word can change their hearts to believe from unbelief to belief. It would seem as humans, we are hardwired to ask two questions about our existence. The first is the one we've just asked Genesis to answer. How did we get here? Genesis tells us by God, God's own hand, God's own work, his voice. But the second question that we are hardwired to ask almost comes right on the heels of that first question. We ask, how did we get here? And then almost immediately after answering that question, we ask, what are we here for? And this is not a question of origin, but a question of purpose. It is to ask, what is the point of life? Why do we exist? What is life all about anyway? Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says plainly that mankind is created in the image of God. God, verse 26, God said, let, ma- let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In fact, it is in the aspects of what is called the Imago Dei, the image of God in mankind, that we find purpose for human life. What are we here for? We find that purpose in God's image in us. Now, if I had to narrow it down to one thing, I would say that the likeness of God, the image of God that all human beings carry is for the purpose of reflecting and expressing into the created world the character and person of the creator himself. God has made us to be like animated thinking mirrors of himself to the universe. He shines upon and through us, and in so doing, we communicate his glory, his moral perfections, his character out into the world. That's what it is to be made in his image. And in Genesis, we get at least four aspects of humanity's purpose in being created by God and being created in his image. So we ask that question, what are we here for? And in the pages of Scripture, particularly here in Genesis, I think we find at least four things related to the image of God in us that speak to our purpose. What are we here for? The first is this, stewardship and creative care. Stewardship and creative care. Looking again at Genesis 1, 27, we find there that God makes man, makes mankind. That word man in Genesis 1 and 2 is used fairly generically to speak of the human race. So not just the male portion of them, but of the human race. God makes mankind in his image and in his likeness for the purpose of being fruitful and multiplying and having dominion over all creation. Further, in verse 28, we read there that God uh, commands man and woman to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. Moreover, when we look at the second telling of creation of man in the next chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, we find there in verses 5, 7, and 15 the following. We read there, When no bush of the field was yet on the land, and no small part of the field had yet sprung up, and there was no man to work the ground, 
Verse 7 picks up of Genesis 2. The Lord formed, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted, planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had, fo- had formed. Verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden for the purpose of, in order to, work it and keep it. Subdue, multiply, have dominion, work it, keep it. All these are responsibilities that God has given to mankind to exercise in this world. Stewardship is a good word, I think, that sums up these various responsibilities that God has given to us. In creation, God speaks into existence a world and creatures and plants to fill it that need managing and care. Perhaps you're thinking this is some sort of fault in God, that he created a non-self-sustaining universe, a universe that was dependent upon the work of man is somehow an imperfection in God's nature. Well, friends, this could not be further from the truth. In the image of God, created to reflect his character, his power in the world, we have been gifted by God the obligation and simultaneously the blessing of caring for creation, of caring for this planet and for the cosmos, and for being fruitful with it and fruitful in it. God in Scripture is the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe. And as his image bearers, we bear a portion of his power and dominion in our charge to care for creation. Friends, have you considered this aspect of your being created in the image of God to care for creation as an on-ramp to gospel conversations with others? Sadly, I think that this is an aspect of our creation that non-believers have in many ways practiced better than many Christians. Environmental groups, although not always rightly or, or rightfully or righteously, environmental groups have in their souls this resonating call of God within them to manage and to steward, to care for the earth that we have, the earth that God has given to us, whether they recognize it coming from His hand or not. But friends, more than merely caring for the earth, God has called and gifted us to be creative with it. To create art, to write music, to imagine plays and dramas, to design buildings and bridges and information superhighways. All of these things are the fruit of the creative power of God that is reflected in us. Those of you who enjoy scrapbooking or gardening or uh, building things, uh, all of that, friends, embrace that as part of God's creative image in you to take what he has created and to be also creative with it. Now hear me, we're not like God who creates the world out of nothing by his spoken word. We have only the things that God has created to play with, if you will. But our ability to create, our, our love of making new things, your skill in the garden, your love of music, our rich history of fine art as a human race, even the children that we conceive and give birth to and raise are all parts of the stewardship and creative care that God has put into the hearts of man. That's why we care about the world. That's why we like to be productive. That's why we enjoy working hard and and seeing things that we build, because God's put it in us to be creative with his creation. We're created to steward this world, to, to care for it creatively, but also we're called to holiness. Part of the image of God in us is a call to be holy. Returning again to Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, there we read this. The Lord God commanded the man, after putting him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And just as quickly as Adam receives his commission to steward and to care for the earth, he receives this command from his Creator. It's a command that demonstrates to us that God created the first man, uh, Adam, and his wife, Eve, with the ability to choose obedience to God and to trust God's good purposes and provision and instruction. This aspect of Adam's creation, the ability to choose righteousness and obedience apart from the influence of any kind of sin yet in the world, is for the expression of his total love of God and perfect holiness. That word holiness, maybe better put, moral perfection, is a part of God's purpose for humanity. We're created to be holy, to reflect God's moral perfection. 
And indeed, it is his very purpose for those that he has saved by his own grace. God says to his rescued people, Israel, in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, he says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. To be God's people is to be like him, is to reflect his character, his nature into the world. He is holy, and he has made us to be holy reflectors, holy image bearers of him. These very words that we read in Leviticus are also applied to the church of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So then holiness, moral perfection, is what God intends for all people. His command to Adam in the garden, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, communicates this truth wonderfully. God created Adam and Eve, our first parents, without the knowledge of sin, but not without the knowledge of holiness. Very simply, to be holy is to do all the time, all that God requires, without fail, every time. Adam and Eve were formed by God's hand with no stain of disobedience in them or in the world. They had full and perfect knowledge of the goodness of God. And it was God's intention that they never willingly take it upon themselves to know disobedience, to choose to disobey, to know unholiness, to know what it is to be immoral. God never intended for them to feel the brokenness of sin. This concept, holiness, moral perfection, is, in my opinion, friends, the most compelling evidence of our being created in God's image today. Every culture in the world has standards of moral conduct. And largely across cultures, there is incredible consistency over what is moral and what's immoral. Murder is seen as objectively wrong in nearly every culture around the world. Adultery is is almost universally frowned upon in the world. Theft, dishonesty, patricide are all considered particularly wicked in almost every culture we have ever known. Oddly enough, we have lots of places in God's word that explain to us that these are all things that God has determined to be a breaking of his moral and holy image in mankind. To murder is to destroy an image bearer of God. To commit adultery is to so disrespect and so defraud uh, uh, two other image bearers of God that, 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 uh, that is a grievous sin. To steal is to take something from another image bearer of God and to make it your own, not trusting in God's provision for yourself and so on. Now, evolutionists will argue that the consistency of morality across cultures, that that murder is almost universally wrong. Adultery is almost universally wrong. Theft and dishonesty are almost universally wrong. Evolutionists will argue that this consistency comes as a byproduct of evolutionary processes. As a species, they say, we have learned the benefit that not murdering, for instance, has to the continuation of our species. If you want to live as, as, a, as a human species, if you want to propagate as a species, it helps not to kill each other. But really, friends, the most that an evolutionist can say about murder or theft is that they are detrimental to the survival and propagation of a species. They really have no objective ground for saying that a thing is good or bad, that it is right or wrong, that it is holy or that it is wicked. They can only say that something is beneficial or detrimental to the survival of a species. It is beneficial for the species not to murder But without a standard of objective goodness or evil, we cannot say that murder is wrong. We cannot say that it is evil. We cannot say that it is wicked. Only not as beneficial for the human race as not murdering. But yet we talk talk about right and wrong in our lives, in our society, in our culture all the time. We have standards for what is morally good or evil. And we use these explicitly moral terms, good, bad, evil, wicked, righteous, just. We use these moral terms in our vocabulary all the time about nearly everything. So, dear friends, I hope that you would see this, that our very moral vocabulary betrays in all of us this longing for an ideal, uh, dare I say, Edenic moral state of living. Our souls, whether you're a Christian or not, long for righteousness. They long for goodness. They are starving for justice. And as Christians, we should not be surprised by this, for we know that God has made us to know goodness, to love righteousness. God has made us to exercise justice as creatures who are made to reflect his perfect holy nature and character in the world. That's part of what he's made us for. 
God has made us in his image to care for creation, even as he has created it by his spoken word. He has created us to be holy, to pursue justice, and, and to love righteousness because he himself is perfectly holy. And being created in his image, we're also made for worship. We can define worship simply by saying it's the act of declaring and applying worth and devotion to something or to someone. Because mankind has been crafted by God in, the image to, in his image to reflect his character and his person to the cosmos, the Bible says that all rightful declaration of worth, all rightful devotion are due to the one true God. We know that Scripture tells us this. I think it's helpful for us to think of worship in terms of glory. We've already said that God is perfectly moral, that he's perfectly powerful. We understand that from the Bible, God is eternally loving and just. These, among many of his other innumerable perfections of God, can be spoken of as his glory. God's glory is his many perfections. And we have been made to worship God in two ways related to glory. First, we worship by giving glory. We've been made to worship by giving glory. To worship God by giving Him glory is simply to recognize the perfections of God and to praise Him personally for those things. This sort of worship is evident in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, where thereafter God creates the first woman and presents her to Adam. There we read in poetic fashion, Adam praising the beautiful work of God. Look at uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Friends, it's hard for us to see in our current context and in our English translations, but this, Genesis 2, 23, is the first love poem and worship song in the Bible. Adam, the first man, upon seeing the worthiness of God in his creation, of a perfect complement to himself in woman, in Eve, he praises the perfection of God's creative ability in this short little love song. He is, in a way, saying, uh, both in praise of God's work and in praise to God for his work, yes, God, you have done this. You have made her. She is perfect for me, and your creation of her is perfect in every way. This is a song of praise to God for his provision of woman to man. Whether you know it or not or recognize it or not, we are really good glory givers as just a part of our nature. In fact, we, we have no further to go than even to our present you know, political situation, sports entertainment, reality television programs to see this. As human beings, we are incredibly skilled at giving worth, of giving value and devotion to people and to things that we find beautiful or find praiseworthy. We even have songs of praise that we sing for our sports teams and our governments and our celebrities. We, we, are, we are extremely talented glory givers as human beings, though often misguided, simply because of, simply by virtue of the fact that we are hardwired as human beings for worship, to worship as image bearers of God. We're hardwired to worship by giving glory, primarily to our Creator. That's how God intended it. That was His design. So we're we're geared to, to worship by giving glory, but we're also geared to worship by declaring glory. Now, to be fair, this feature of worship, declaring glory, is not a whole lot different than giving glory, but it does differ in terms of the audience. When we worship by giving glory, we do so to the one that we determine worthy of that worship. We give glory to the one deserving worship, okay? But when we declare glory, we turn that praise from vertical to horizontal to tell others of the praiseworthiness of that person, place, or thing that we are worshiping. So, for instance, uh, in terms of worshiping God, we worship God by giving Him glory as we individually and even corporately praise God for who He is and what He has done. But we also declare glory individually and corporately as we speak horizontally, reminding one another of the praiseworthiness of God, speaking about the the praiseworthiness, the worthiness of God in in the culture and in uh, conversations we have about him. That's all part of our declaring God's glory. So we find that the Psalms are great examples of declaring the glory of God to creation, to others. For instance, Psalm, uh, Psalm 148 There the psalmist writes this, one of my favorite psalms in all of the Psalter. 
excellent psalm of, of declaring God's glory. He says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. And then pages stuck together. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars. Beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Kings of the earth and all peoples. Princes and all rulers of the earth. Young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Psalm 148 is an excellent example of what it is to declare God's glory into creation, to call others to praise God for what he is worthy of. I wonder, church, if we really truly evaluated it, how much worship of things in our life and culture we would really see today. How often are we calling others to praise the worthiness of this or that sports team? How often are we calling others to praise the, the, the uprightness of, or, or, or the, 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 uh, the celebrity of, of this preacher or that? Or the talent of this actress or actor over that one? We declare the worthy merits of even our preferred diets and farming practices. Right, just go, go to the grocery store and you see the whole different aisles set up for like uh, the food that everyone can afford to buy and organic stuff, okay? Right? It's like we declare the worthy merits of God help us, Twitter over Facebook, Instagram over Snapchat. If you don't know what any of those things are, God bless you. We debate the merits of Apple over Android. We, we declare the glory of things all the time. Petty, silly, stupid little things. It may seem crazy to think of all of, all of this as worship, all of these examples as worship, but friends, they are. And they reveal yet again this internal drive in our very souls to praise praiseworthy things, to declare the glory of things that appear to us glorious. Dear Christian, I pray that you would know that when compared to all the shiny things and shiny people of our world, that our creator, the triune God of the universe, outshines them all. And that being convinced of this, we would declare his glory in this world. We're created by God to care for the earth that he has created for us. We're created by God to be holy, even as he is holy, to to pursue justice and, and righteousness even as he is perfectly just and righteous. We're created by God in his image for worship, uh, to, to both declare, to, to both give him glory personally and to declare his glory into the world. We find also that we are created by God in his image for love. First of all, for love of God. For us to see this, for us to see that we were made to love God, we need to look no further than Genesis 1 and 2 and to see the love that God has for mankind. I wonder in all your many readings of the creation story, have you noticed how meticulously God creates all things in an order and in a manner that are tailored for Adam and Eve's occupation of the garden and for their successful stewardship of creation? By his word, we read in Genesis 1 that he speaks light into existence. He sets an atmosphere around the earth and water upon its surface. He places the oceans in their rightful places. He causes plants to grow up for sustenance. He hangs the stars in the night sky. He fills the oceans and rivers with fish and creatures of all kinds and covers the land with all sorts of animals for man's enjoyment. And then finally, he creates man to enjoy and to care for it all. Do you see how even before God creates Adam and Eve, he spoke into existence all things necessary for our survival and for our thriving on the earth that he created? Friends, do not miss God's great love for man in his provision for us in creation. And even more, I would hope, I would pray that we would not miss God's great love for us in salvation. Now, as the series goes on, next week and the week after, we'll see in greater depth the problem of sin as it infects and affects the image of God in man. But we don't need a deep explanation of sin just now to to know that it is our greatest problem in this life. 
Our first parents, Adam and Eve, their disobedience to God's command in Genesis 3 has broken all of the world with the effects of that disobedience. And it has infected the soul of every person from birth with an inescapable spiritual malady. Our sinful hearts want to love ourselves. Our sinful hearts want to love our desires and love our will over and above God himself. We set in our hearts to love creatures rather than the creator. And from this desperate condition that we call sin, we need to be saved. John the apostle writes in his first letter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. There he says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Oh, my dear friends, see God's continued love to you in sending his son, Jesus, who was God in the flesh, fully God and yet miraculously fully human to live a life without sin, without stain of disobedience, that he might die to pay the penalty for your sin. That's what propitiation is. It's one person paying the full and deserved penalty for the crime of another. So do not think little of God's great love to you this morning. Do not miss that even now he was wooing you and calling you, imploring you to receive the love that he has shown to you in Jesus and to love him in return by lamenting your sin, repenting from it, turning from it, and trusting Jesus as Lord, trusting him as Savior, and being made to love your creator as you were created to do. God has created us to love him, and he has rescued us by his own work through his son Jesus, that we might love him again, even as we are loved by him. We're created to love God, but we're also created in God's image to love neighbor. We're created for love of neighbor. Certainly, Genesis helps us to see that we are made to love God because his love for us is evident in creation and even in salvation. Love of God is the greatest of all the commandments. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 44, citing Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. But from the first marriage between Adam and Eve, we see that God has also created us in his image to love others, to love one another. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 says this, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Of all the things that God made good, a lonely man is not counted among them. In fact, God says that what is good is for man to have more than a companion, for him to have a complement, not a complement with an I, but complement with an E, another one who is like him to make him whole, another half, if you will. And so God gives him another human, like Adam in many ways, and quite unlike Adam in all of the right ways, she, Eve, the woman, is his complement and his helper. And there is great love between them, we see in these first two chapters of Genesis. This sacred union of man and woman in a lifelong covenant relationship is the definition of a biblical marriage. This is the ideal to which we strive and encourage one another in romantic relationships. One man, one woman, united together in a covenant relationship before God because this is God's design and God's good plan for marriage. And while this covenant relationship of marriage is the only appropriate, it's the only God-ordained context for sexual intimacy, it is not the only context for genuine love of others. The very fact that we care deeply for our children, that we have sincere fondness for our dear friends, and that our hearts break for those who are vulnerable and hurting. All of these things demonstrate that, that a vital part of our created state is to love others as well. Just as God expresses perfect love of himself among the three persons of his existence, Father, Son, and Spirit, And as that love he extends outside of himself to human beings, so also ought we to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, as well as extending love outside ourselves to our neighbor. In his image, God has created us for relationships with others. He's made us to long for friendship, for companionship. You may have heard that in January of this year, the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, appointed what she has called a minister for loneliness in the UK. A minister for loneliness charged with tackling, quote, the sad reality of modern life. 
It is true that with all of our social media, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, the things that you guys know nothing about. With all of our social media, we are finding ourselves with fewer and fewer real, physical, lasting, relational connections. We are fi- with all of the friends that we have on Facebook, we have relatively few in real life. Now, whether or not loneliness, uh, or we could argue, has risen to epidemic status in Britain or in the United States or even other parts of the world, the isolation and the seclusion that has come with our socially disconnected society is real. And we know that it is not right. We know that loneliness is not ideal. It's not what we've been created for. We as Christians know that loneliness is not what we were made by God for because God has created us as relational beings to love Him and to be loved by Him, yes, but also to love and to be loved by others. Returning to 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John verse, chapter 4, verse 10, we read this, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then John goes on right after that in verse 11 to say, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. We've been created by God to take care of the world that he has created. We've been created uh, by God to, uh, to be holy, even as he is holy, to worship him by giving him glory and declaring his glory in the world. He has created us as, as beings who need love and need to love. He has made us dependent upon his love that we might love him in return, and he has made us to receive and to give love to others. All of this is part of our being created in his image. All of these things answer, help to answer, at least in part, that question, what are we here for? How do we get here? God spoke all of this into existence. He created us of his own uh, action, his handiwork in the dust of the ground and breathing life into us as living beings. But what are we here for? We're here to take care of the world that God has created for us. We're here to reflect his moral perfections in the world. We're here to worship him. And we're here to love him, to be loved by him, and and to love and to be loved by others. So as you engage in conversation with those that you know who don't know Christ, I would encourage you to learn to ask gospel-oriented questions related to our image of God even and and our created state. Learn to ask gospel-oriented questions and to listen to honest answers. Everybody's got an answer to those two questions. How did we get here and what are we here for? Now, now we have the best answer to those questions in Genesis 1 and 2 and, and, and throughout the rest of Scripture. We have the best and most compelling answer to that. But we ought not expect for people to respect our answer to that question if we're not first ready to respect their answer to the similar questions. You follow? Part of engaging in gospel conversations with people who don't know Christ is, is not so much standing on a soapbox on a street corner and, and shouting out that, that apart from Christ, everyone is going to hell and, and going to spend an eternity there separated from God, although that is true. But most of the most, the, the most fruitful gospel conversations that I have had, and I would venture to say that you have had, have taken place in the context of, of trusted friendship of respect and admiration for one another because you've taken time to get to know other people and they've taken time to get to know you. There's been a a mutual asking and listening in that relationship. So as we as a church body strive to have gospel conversations in a regular way, we ought to, to learn to ask questions about the design that God has had for our universe and to be ready to listen to honest answers. I want to give you four questions to think about uh, uh, utilizing or, or maybe to even to improve on to connect lost people, people that you're wanting to share Christ with, connecting them to God's grand design, God's intention for creating anything at all, and his purpose for us today. Think about asking these questions of those that you know who don't know Christ. Number one, what is it about caring for creation? What is it about being creative that seems to stir people's hearts? 
Maybe you've got a close friend who's, who's really into uh, uh, fine arts. They really enjoy painting or sculpting or scrapbooking. Or maybe they're a, a successful gardener or a farmer or an architect or a builder. Or they, they get much fulfillment and enjoyment out of working with their hands and creating things. Ask them, well, I see that you're talented at this thing. I see you've got quite the green thumb. Like, where does that come from? Why do you love gardening so much? Use that as an, as an on-ramp, as an entree to talking about what God has created for and, and creating us to steward his creation, being creative. Why do you love music so much? Why do you love this kind of music? Why do you, why do you love writing songs like this? And we can take that and you can pivot very quickly. You know, if they respond in kind, well, why do you think it is? You can pivot real quickly to the gospel. I think it's just part of how God's created us. God's a creative God, the Bible tells us, and he's, he's given us all that we need to also be creative with, with what he has given to us. And, and I think he enjoys when we're creative in the right ways with the things that he's given to us. Question number two. How do you think it is that our society is so bent toward pursuing justice for the vulnerable, especially right now? Where does that impulse come from? Friends, you don't have to spend a whole lot of time watching the news or reading the newspaper to hear discussions about fairness, about justice, about equality, about doing what is right. We speak in moral terms all the time. We talk about the goodness and the badness, the wickedness, the evil, the the uprightness of things in the world all the time. We use that language constantly. Use that uh, internal drive that everyone has for morality, for justice, for righteousness. Use that to ask questions, to, to, to see where, how, how your lost friends, your, people, your friends who don't know Christ, your family members who don't know Christ, how they answer those questions, what are we here for? What, what's the purpose of our living? Ask them about what they think, that they're, uh, what they perceive as a, an objective ground for morality, an objective basis for righteousness in the world. You can pivot real quick. Uh, on an answer to that, to get to the gospel, to talk about God's holiness, God's righteousness, his desire that we walk in righteousness and in holiness as well. Third question to consider, related especially to our capacity for worship. Ask your friends, what are you really passionate about? Right? If there were one thing in life that you would want to convince me to give my life to, if you were going to evangelize me to anything, dear friend, what would it be? What would it be? If there's one thing to live my life for, fellow coworker, fellow teacher, classmate, what would it be? What should I live my life for? They give that answer, and you listen respectfully and hear that. Don't, don't respond with anything judging. Just prayer, uh, prayerfully and, and expectantly ask them to ask the same in return. Friends, if you respectfully listen to the, to the answer that someone gives to that question, what is really worth living, what, what in life is really worth living for? And they respond with the same question, well, what about you? How easy is it then to say, I think the, the one thing that, that, w- that, that is worth living for in this world is glorifying God, knowing our creator, being right with him. And the Bible tells us that we can have a relationship like that by trusting in his son, Jesus, who died for our sins, who was raised from the dead, that in that is real purpose. We're made by God to worship him and to tell others about his excellencies and to communicate his love for us to the world. That's, what's, that, that's what my life is worth living for. See how easily asking questions and actually listening to honest answers can help you pivot to the gospel? I want to give you one more. We've asked a question related to stewardship, creative care. We've asked questions related to uh, holiness or, or morality, justice in the world. We've asked questions related to uh, uh, um, uh, worship and, and our purpose in the world in that regard. But fourth and finally, regarding this issue of love, love of God and love of others. You may say to your friend, you know, it breaks my heart to see so much loneliness in the world. I just, I know so many people who are lonely. I wonder, friend, uh, how can I be a better friend to you? Is there anything I can do for you? Can we get coffee? Can we get dinner sometime just to get to know each other better? How can I be a better friend to you? Christian, you know the perfect love that a holy God has given to you in his son, Jesus Christ. And if you know him, you know that love that the father gives. As John says, we ought also to love one another. Maybe more than asking a question, this is extending yourself in a sacrificial way to, to fulfill the need in, a, in a, a friend, a family member, a coworker, a classmate for their longing for relationship in this world, meaningful relationship, something that matters. Friend, uh, can I be a better friend to you? 
How can I help? What can I do for you? How can I be there for you? And don't do it with a tweet. Don't do it with a Facebook message. Do it in person, right? Speak with your mouth. Look them in the eye because those are things that we crave because God has made us to crave human interaction. And use that growing relationship as, as, it, as you build trust and, 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 uh, and, and reliability and, and actual uh, demonstrate that you actually care about others. Use those things as God gives opportunity to point your friends to the gospel, to ask some of these other questions. We show our love for Christ, I think, best and most tangibly when we demonstrate that same sort of love to others, especially in a society that is growing more and more lonely with each and every passing day. Friends, we know the love of God to us, and we have every obligation as followers of Christ to extend that love to others in real, tangible, relational ways. And I think you'll be surprised by how much credibility the gospel message gets when your life, when your walk, matches your talk matches what you say. Some have said that integrity is when the tongue in your mouth is moving in the same direction as the tongue in your shoes, that you're walking the talk and you're talking the walk. You're, you're doing this all, all of this consistently. We can't talk about the love of God in any sort of, of reasonable and, and, and trustworthy terms if we're not also extending that same love of God and Christ to us to others who need it as well. Friends, I pray that as we endeavor to have gospel conversations, that we would do so within the framework of of God's design, of the grand narrative of Scripture, of God's design and our sin and God's rescue plan. And today we've looked at just a, a few ways of how we can begin to frame those conversations around God's great design. And I hope that you're helped by some of these questions that I've suggested you begin asking. But more than that, friend, you who are here this morning that might not call yourself a Christian, wouldn't identify yet as a follower of Jesus. I, I want to say, number one, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. Because this is a place full of people who know the love of God, the forgiveness of God for our sins, the grace of God to us in Christ Jesus, and who are trying to live like him each and every day. And we want the same for you. Friend, if you don't know Christ today, maybe you've, maybe you've even been attending this church for years and years, and you, you know today in your heart of hearts you never really trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord. You've never really stepped into the, the design for living that God has created you for. I pray that today you would make today the day of your salvation, that you would recognize that by your own sin... That you have made yourself guilty before God. You've been disobedient to Him. You've, you've broken His commands. You've done what is not morally perfect all of the time. And that recognizing your sin, you recognize your relationship with God is broken. You see the effects of sin in your life. And desiring to be a part of God's design, uh, the way that He has created us and what He's created us for, that you would see that His Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, died in our place, rose from the dead, that faith in him is the only way to have your sins forgiven, the only way to have your, your rebellion against God taken care of. I hope, dear friend, if you're not a Christian today, that you would become one by placing your faith and trust in Jesus today and asking God to strengthen you, to be faithful and obedient to Christ every day of your life. And I promise you that if you do so, you have a family of faith here in this room, brothers and sisters, who want to love you, who want to care for you, who want to help you to grow in your relationship with Christ so that you can give him glory and declare his glory into the world by sharing that same gospel that you've heard this morning. I'm going to pray, and as I do, the praise team is going to return to the stage. They're going to lead us in a song of response here in a moment. If any of that that I just said is, is applicable to you and you feel God calling you out of, out of your seat to give your life to Christ, I'm going to be standing here at the front of the room this morning to receive you, to talk with you, to counsel you about how you can know for certain that you can be saved, that you have a relationship with God and a new life walking in, uh, in, in faith with Him. I would love to meet with you even as our team sings. So uh, I'd ask that you would just be bold, you'd be brave, that you'd step out, know that there's no judgment, no condemnation. Nobody's going to think ill of you for coming forward. Rather, you'll have a room full of people that are praying for you, asking that God would strengthen you as you make whatever decision you need to make in following God today. Let's pray.